Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning in worship. As Christ established the church, he saw that it was good and that it was appropriate and, in fact, necessary for us to be together to sing these songs that we're singing uh, because they're an acknowledgement of of who God is and his character traits and the things that we need to be uh, verbally saying, the things that we need to be singing. Now, I was raised in the church. I think many of you likely were as well or have at least been attending church for some time. And I think that there is a tendency when we come to church week after week after week to, to kind of lose the element of the necessity of, of, of coming expectantly here. And so this is a place, the church as Christ established, for believers to come to be refreshed, to be encouraged, to grow, to be convicted, to remember the gospel. And that's why we sing, not just because it's kind of what we've always done, but that's why we sing. That's why we sit under the teaching of God's word. And so with that in mind, uh, I'd like to open with prayer, and I would like for you to pray with me and ask that, that God, through his Holy Spirit, would speak to us this morning. So please pray with me. Father, we come to you uh, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we thank you that we are able to approach you through the work of Christ on the cross. And I ask that you would please speak to us by your Holy Spirit and through, Father, your Holy Word. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Danny Beach. I'm the young adult pastor here at East Cooper, and it's a joy to, to be able to uh, worship with you all this morning. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 11, it's in your bulletin, but I would like for you to be able to follow along with it. So turn there or open up your bulletin or click on your app. We're going to be referencing this text throughout the course of the sermon this morning. 2 Corinthians was written by the uh, Apostle Paul. He established a church in the city of Corinth, modern-day Greece, um, on his second missionary journey. And this church uh, was, was continually... Uh, struggling with different things, which most churches do at different levels. Second Corinthians was written to address the church and emphasize that God was the one, in fact, doing the work, that it was never about the Apostle Paul. There were people who had risen in the church and had questioned his life and his lifestyle, had questioned his ministry, and had even questioned his apostleship. And so he's addressing some of those con- concerns, calling some people out, but also seeking to draw all attention to God and his work. So, I'm going to read this text, and if you would follow along with me, beginning in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must pray, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So as we look at this text this morning, uh, I want to look at it kind of in three pieces. The first two verses, the second three verses, um, and, then, and then the final verse. So uh, the first two verses of this text really set a stage for understanding the rest of this. So let's go back to verses three and four and look at those again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I want to make a couple observations about these two verses. First, I think it's important for us to recognize that there is a very comprehensive view of comfort and affliction here by the words that are being used. It says the God of all comfort, will comfort all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction. That this very specifically is not just speaking of a certain type of physical persecution, but that the God of all comfort is able to provide that comfort for all of our afflictions, whether they're big or small, whether they're mental or physical or emotional so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So it's very comprehensive. It's a broad broad statement here. The second observation that I want to make is that we see here that this God of all comfort is, in fact, the head of the Trinity, is God the Father. So as we look at the God of all comfort, we are not speaking of comfort that comes to the believer that is simply... Uh, sprinkled out as a, a, a byproduct of faith, but it's something very specific that is coming specifically from the head of the Trinity, God the Father. And we're going to see how that plays out further in the text. The third observation that I want to make in these first two verses is uh, I want to pose a question about God the Father, who is the God of all comfort. Uh, the The question I want to ask is, what credentials does God have to, in fact, be the God of all comfort? Some people might say, that's a foolish question, Danny. God is God, and he can do all these things. Um, Let's just kind of move beyond that. And, And I'll tell you, having grown up in the church, there were many times when there were elements of Scripture, as my doctrine was being developed, that I asked myself questions that I just felt guilty about asking. I shouldn't ask that. I should know that. Or I should be convinced of that already. But sometimes I think life, as you walk the path of life, you face some things. And you might, you might look at a text and say that God is the God of all comfort. And you say, yeah, 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 God, you know, he's, he can do any, anything. But maybe you look at your life and say, well, I'm a Christian, but... Maybe I'm not defined by comfort, so do I really, I don't disbelieve that, but am I really convinced of that? I spent uh, about 10 years doing student ministry here at East Cooper, and 
I always wanted to encourage students in their faith to, to question things, that it's okay to have questions. But the important thing is to keep asking those questions and to seek the answers. And, and, and God has given us his holy word, not as a, a, a suggestion book, but as a, as a very real guide. It says the Bible is living and active. It is not just a book of history. It is not just a book of, of true truths, but it's actually living. And God has revealed himself to us and, in fact, has defined himself for us in his word. And so, if we ask the question, what credentials does God really have to actually be the God of all comfort, meaning if there's any comfort that you receive as a believer, then it is coming from God, what do we base that on? I want to propose two character traits that we know of God. First, that He is totally sovereign and in total control over all of His creation. He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega, and He is the beginning and the end. In Psalm 22, it says, Kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 speaks of uh, God the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. Ephesians 1:11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, that God is sovereign over everything. He knows the day of your death. He knows what tomorrow holds for you. That he is never taken by surprise by anything. Now, these are things that if, if you grew up in the faith, you've been a believer for a while, you don't necessarily doubt them. But one reason why we gather together as a group of believers is to continue to hear the same things that we need to continually hear. Because we need to be reminded of this all the time. The second character trait of God that I want to point out is that he, he loves. And he loves totally. He loves unconditionally. We all memorize John 3.16 as children, likely. And it says that for God so loved the world that he did something so drastic that he gave his only son. Why? Why? Because he loves. 1 John 4 says that God is love. It goes on to say that, that God is the initiator of love. We love because he first loved us. We see that love could not exist if the Trinity didn't first exist, and that love is defined by God. We see in Psalm 118 that his steadfast love continues forever and ever and ever and then ever and ever. It says in Romans 8 that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. You could fall hard. You could mess up a big time. And God would still look at you and say, I love you. So if you combine these two character traits of God, that he is, he is totally sovereign and in total control, and, and that he loves completely, then what you have there is somebody, the only person, who is able to provide comfort. If God is not in control, then how can he be trusted? Can somebody who cannot be trusted really provide us control? What if somebody does not love us totally? What if somebody does not have our best interests in mind? Are they dependable for us to receive comfort from them? Our relationship with God minus love turns into duty, right? And fear. And I ought to so that I don't get punished. 
or end up someplace I don't want to be. And so you take these two glorious character traits of God that he is totally sovereign and totally loves and has our best interest in mind because Scripture tells us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And God knows that, that our best interest is more of him then he is able to be the only giver of true comfort. The fourth observation that I want to make in this text, in verse 4, it says, God, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What we see here is a, I'm going to call it a waterfall effect of comfort. That, that comfort, the comfort that God gives has a trajectory that goes beyond its first contact. That the comfort that God gives is not a refreshing drink of water that you, the afflicted, consume. Rather, it's, it's a waterfall that, that pours and pools into your life, but then it always continues through various rivers and streams. And this is something mysterious. We don't have all of this figured out how this works, but these, the text tells us that as we are comforted, that comfort progresses beyond us with a deeper, further, eternal trajectory that only God knows and only God works out. These are good things. <laughs> Look at verses 5, 6, and 7. It says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ." We share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So the beginning of verse 5, when it says, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. I believe that as you read this for the very first time, there's a, an, an easy tendency to make the application that to share abundantly in Christ's sufferings means to suffer in the same way that Christ suffered on, in his crucifixion in the days leading up to the cross. That as Christ was beaten, so I should at least be willing to also suffer in those ways because I'm a Christian. Or as Christ uh, faced an unfair trial or judgment by other people, so should I also face that same type of affliction or suffering. Or, or even as Christ died, so should I also share in his sufferings and will it be willing to put my life on the line for what I believe in. And though some of those things may in fact be true, that's not actually what, what Paul is talking about here. In the bulletin, you see 1 Peter 2, verses 22 and 23. I'd like for you to look at that. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds you have been healed. We see that Christ's death on the cross 
was an atoning sacrifice. And Paul is not calling believers to die an atoning sacrificial death because Christ did that already, and we can't do that. Also, you see in your bulletin the, the quote from Warren Wearsby. He said this, Paul was referring here to the fellowship of his sufferings, the trials that we endure because, like Christ, we are faithfully doing the Father's will. This is suffering for righteousness' sake. So, when Jesus Christ lived on this earth, he had one objective, and that was the gospel. That's what he was there for. And that objective made the decisions for his life, that because his goal was the gospel, he did things a certain way, that he, inter- he interacted with people in a certain way, and he faced criticism because of it, and all of these different things. And Jesus Christ, pre-cross, faced all sorts of affliction, everything from, from physical affliction, like, like hunger, to um, people mocking him, and, and, and uh, wounded relationships, and people misunderstanding him. They just didn't get it. And all, so when we began this text and talked about how God is the God of all comfort and all affliction, we see that there's a very broad scope here that as Jesus lived his life with the objective of the gospel, he faced varying levels of affliction. And as you live your life, if you're a Christ follower, with the gospel as your objective, you are also going to face similar afflictions. 1 Corinthians at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, there's this, this great description by Paul of how believers have access to a spiritual wisdom that the world does not have access to. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person, meaning the person without Christ, the person who does not believe in the gospel and does not have the Holy Spirit in them, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit because they are folly to him. They are foolishness to him. That makes no sense. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual wisdom which the believer is called to live by. So what we begin to see is that this gospel, this, 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 this life of living with a gospel objective, empowered by spiritual wisdom, that that wisdom is exclusive to the believer. It's not available to anybody but those that have entrusted their life to Christ. So what that means, in essence, is if you as a believer possess wisdom that is from God and God alone, that is spiritual, and everybody who's not a believer does not possess that same wisdom, then the door is wide open for everybody to disagree with you about the way you live your life, right? If you think about the way you manage your money, people might say, wait, you give? What percent? (laughs) To the church? With every paycheck? I mean, isn't the church a scam? I mean, I know this guy who, you really give, wait, you give your, you went on a mission show, how much did it cost to go on that trip? How much did you give for that? Isn't that your vacation time? What about the way that we view marriage and even sex? The world doesn't agree. It's foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense. 
really? You're going to wait till you're married? Even though you're, you're in your 20s? I mean, this is kind of the, the thing now. What about the way that you handle conflict in the workplace? To, to forgive somebody who hasn't sought your forgiveness. You got, you got passed over, you got undercut. And, and the world says, you now have the right to undercut them. Or, I mean, you should stand up for yourself. It doesn't make sense to the world to simply say, I've been forgiven and I can, I can forgive, even though I've legitimately been wronged. It, it's foolishness. I mean, what about your leisure time? Really? You spend, uh, you know, Sunday morning at church? I mean, that's one of your two weekdays. I mean, isn't it kind of stuffy? Um, you go to a community group? Every, uh, that's how you spend your Sunday nights? Every week? What do you do? Talk about the Bible? I, don't, I mean, I'd rather watch football. It doesn't make sense to the world. So if the world has the opportunity to disagree with you, then we've seen this in life. Disagreement is a, is a very close cousin to mockery, right? Disdain, maybe slander. I mean, disagreements break up friendships. Disagreements disallow promotion. Disagreements put you in places that maybe you don't think you would be if you did not have the objective of living out the gospel. It, it brings affliction. So when it says that we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, this is also a pretty broad statement that if you're living for Christ, you're going to face affliction. Again, in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. This is the next chapter. Paul, he says this. He says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That Paul is referencing an affliction that's emotional and mental. In the sense that there are people that he cares for. People that he legitimately loves. As if they were his own brothers and sisters, and they're not doing well. They're making poor decisions, and so he is afflicted because of it. So it's important for us to not just pass over this text and say, yeah, 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 if it ever comes to that in America, I should be willing to stand up and die for my faith. Yes, all, you should, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying that as you live your life with the gospel objective, loving and living the gospel, it's going to bring affliction. And through that affliction, you receive comfort. Paul actually gives further example of his affliction in verses 8, 9, and 10. So jump down in the text, and let's look at that. Paul says this as example. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experience in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, 
and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. First of all, most scholars agree that we don't know what this affliction was that Paul is referencing here. Similar to when Paul spoke of uh, the thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was, but it was something that afflicted him. And it was something that all Christians from that point forward could relate with. We don't know if, if this affliction that he had in Asia was a health issue. We don't know if it was physical persecution and, and beatings. We don't know if it was a mental anguish like he references in chapter 2. We don't know if it was some sort of a spiritual attack. But what we do know was that Paul had found himself at the end of himself, that he was so afflicted that he was overburdened. And, and, and the verbiage that Paul uses here is the same terminology that they use uh, when they refer to an overloaded ship that is so weighted down that it's going to sink. Not, mm, let's see if we can make this work. It's going to sink. And he says, I'm at the end. I can't go any further. It's, it seems like it's hard to believe that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who has a pretty significant affliction resume, uh, would find himself at this, at this point. But he did. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul mentions his other afflictions while giving glory to God. He says, I have faced imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, toil. I was in toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and exposed to the elements." So, of, of all people, Paul should kind of get it, but yet he still found himself in a situation where he was in such affliction that he despaired unto death. In John Calvin's commentary on 2 Corinthians, this is also in your bulletin, Calvin makes a connection in this story that, that, that Paul gives in verses 8, 9, and 10. He draws a connection in verse 8 when Paul says, beyond our strength, and in verse 9 when he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Calvin says that even the saints, pause, when, when Calvin says saints, he's not referring to Paul just because he wrote books of the Bible, saints here means all believers. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're one of the saints. So when Calvin says even the believer find them, can find themselves, even saints, excuse me, even saints themselves should be in danger of an entire failure of strength. We must, however, take notice chiefly of what he adds to this design, that he had been reduced to this extremity, that he might not trust in himself. For he was a man, and as a man he was subjected in other respects to like passions as other men, not merely just to cold and heat, but also to misdirected confidence, rashness, 
and the like. I do not say that he was addicted to these vices, but this I say, that he was capable of being tempted to them, and that this was the remedy that God had seasonably interposed, that they might not take, make their way into his mind. Finally, Calvin says that the saints or believers themselves have some remains of this disease. What Paul is saying here is that he found himself in a situation in which he himself tried to fight his way out of, and he couldn't. That he, he found himself at the end of himself, despairing under life itself. And the solution that Paul proposes here, that Calvin outlines, is that it wasn't until Paul found himself at the end of himself that he realized, this is not my life. I'm not in control of the situation. I never was. That there is somebody out there who is the giver of life. There is somebody out there who is able to raise the dead. I cannot, but there is somebody that I can trust who can. And he is the one that I can go to. I know in my life, when I find myself in varying levels of affliction, it is often connected with my own ability to try to figure out the situation. Because I have a tendency to look at life and the problems of life or the confusions of life or the frustrations of life or the afflictions of life. I have this tendency to categorize them. Some are spiritual problems and some are other problems that, Danny, you just got to do better. You know, the spiritual problems, I got the Bible verses, I go back to the gospel, God is in control and he loves me. I can trust him. He's trustworthy. I can do this. I can trust in what Christ has done on the cross. And then there's other problems in my life where I often look at and just say, I just got to try better, try more. I got to pull myself up by the, by the bootstraps, and we got, I got I to gotta fix this problem. I got to fix my finances. I got to fix the relationship problem that my wife and I just had a, a, a bickering fight over. I got I to gotta step up here. And what, what Paul is saying here is that without Christ, you're going to come to the end. With, without, without Christ, you might take a step that feels like you're moving forward. But without receiving comfort from God the Father, it's not true. And it's not lasting. I know that I have a tendency to face life and confusions and frustrations and disallow myself to be comforted until I see the logic of the situation that I'm in. Have you ever found yourself there? Something goes haywire or something crashes and it shouldn't. Somebody was a jerk to me and I want to see them apologize or I want to see people recognize that I was in the right or I want to see this thing rectified and then I could sit back and be in comfort. But that is nowhere promised in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the God of all comfort will then give you a dossier of how this thing works out for you. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that the God of all comfort will explain himself fully to you so that you can get it and then you can rely on your own logic rather than God the Father. So the afflictions that we face in this life don't have to be restricted to some potential affliction if, if we lose all of our religious liberties. 
but the afflictions that we face in life are a result that we're trying to live like Christ. And sometimes we bring those afflictions on ourselves, and sometimes we're just living for the gospel and the affliction comes from the world. The second half of verse 5 says that for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The encouraging thing about this verse is that we see that because of the gospel, through Christ, we as believers are able to receive the same comfort that Jesus Christ received while he lived this life. So in this context, this is not speaking of receiving comfort from from Jesus. Rather, we are receiving the same type of comfort that Jesus received from God the Father. Through Christ, we receive comfort. Through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Romans 8.17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The NIV says that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we become children of God, that we become adopted into his family, that if you're a Christ follower, you have an inheritance, that you're not just joined into a club or you're not just put into a category, but you are part of the family that you have been brought into the Trinity itself. You have been brought into the relationship of the Trinity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying that you become the fourth part of the Trinity. That would be heresy. Buster said no heresy. All right? But we, be, we, we are brought into the intimate level of relationship that is experienced within that Trinity. And it is a beautiful thing. In verse 3, we see as God the Father being the God of all comfort, we see that this is enabled by Jesus Christ the Son. In your bulletin, we see in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure, meaning we have this gospel, we have this hope, we have this comfort in jars of clay, which is in our bodies, our fragile, breakable of no true, lasting value body. We have this this great treasure in our body to show, not us, but show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Christ may be manifested or shown to the world in our bodies and in our lives. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Christ's sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal bodies. This is the gospel. God the Father, God of all comfort, the gospel enabled. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, 5, we see that he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of this gospel, as a guarantee of this comfort. So we are always of good courage that we have been brought in, fellow believer. You're not on the outside. And you're not just in a club. You're in the family of God, sharing relationship with the Trinity. There is no tighter place. There is no sweeter place. There is no more safe place than to be brought into God's family, 
This very God who is the God of all comfort, this very God who is totally sovereign, this very God who totally loves and has your best interest in mind because your best, best interest is his glory. We have been brought in. Let's look at verse, verse 6. It says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So if we're, comf- if we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort. Our living out the gospel, which brings affliction in various ways, which then brings comfort from God the Father, is a double glory of sorts. Because it's glorious that the believer has this comfort made available to him. But the, there's a, it's a double glory because of this waterfall effect that in some mysterious way, God uses that comfort that, that it goes out from him in that waterfall effect and influences others beyond you for their very sanctification and salvation, it says. Here's, here's a silly example. My wife and I have a garden, and we have some tomato plants. And uh, when we don't water them, you know what happens. The leaves kind of turn. Everything kind of tilts. Uh, fruit, tomatoes are not, not produced. If, if I'm the tomato plant, and I'm afflicted by this lack of water, and God, who is the giver of all comfort, has this big bucket of water, this big bucket of comfort, and he takes it and and splashes it all over me. My affliction is met with comfort. My my leaves turn up, the the plant straightens and begin producing fruit. But as a result of that giant bucket splash, everything around me is green too. And it is nothing that I did. I, I didn't do anything other than be afflicted and receive comfort. This is cosmic. This is eternal. This, this is mysterious. We, we don't understand all the ramifications of how that works, but it works, believer. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the, is the true story that Jesus tells of the widow's might. This wasn't a parable. That Jesus observed a very poor elderly woman who gave her last two pennies in the offering plate. And we don't know what happened to her. We don't know her name. It is most likely that she had no idea until her death, and she arrived in heaven, that her story was, was even observed, much less recorded in Scripture and used by God for all of Christendom to use as an example of what it means to give. Isn't that amazing? The widow's might. She didn't know. She was just poor. And she gave from her poverty, and it was recorded in Scripture for us to read and reread for generations. So are you afflicted in some way? It is not for nothing. I don't know how. And I can't explain it all to you, but the God of all comfort is using it for the eternal advancement of his kingdom.
In verse 11, Paul begins to wrap up his opening statement of this letter, which is what this text is. It's, it's, it's a beautiful wrap-up, but Paul concludes by beseeching prayers from the believers. He says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks, many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. In this context, we see that giving thanks to God or giving praise to God is truly speaking of advancing the kingdom. Because anytime you give thanks and praise to God, it is to your spiritual benefit. Anytime. It is always going to be a good idea to give thanks and praise to God. Anytime. It will always help us as a body, corporately, to offer thanksgiving and praise to God. It is something that is always appropriate and will always help you in your walk with Christ. And it will always be a sweet offering received by God. It is never a bad idea. So if I find myself not worshiping, not offering up praise, and not being thankful, then there's really only one other thing that I could be doing. I'm only caught up with either myself, my day, my issues, my problems, my sin, my agenda, or my checklist. My, 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 my. And so when Paul is beseeching prayers, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us. So he is saying when we receive comfort by God, may it cause other people to give thanks. May it cause the kingdom to continually be advanced. Because God is the only one who is at work here. He always was. And we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that people will offer up praise because we buckled down and we did it. No, no. May people give praise because God did it. Because God provided the comfort through your affliction. Because the outside world saw what you were going through. They saw the pain, they saw the suffering, they saw the frustration, they saw the confusion, and they saw the comfort that only God the Father can give, and they offered up thanksgiving because of it. So pray for that, he says. Pray that thanksgiving would go out more and more and more. Pray that the kingdom would advance. Pray for your brothers and sisters who were afflicted. Not just that they would receive comfort, but that God would receive praise and glory because of it. We have a great God who is a God of all comfort, who has total sovereignty and totally loves us. There's great comfort in knowing that God is the one who is doing all of it. When we receive comfort from God, we are sharing in fellowship with the Trinity. Our affliction and our comfort have eternal benefits, and our affliction and our comfort plays a very role in the salvation and sanctification of others through God's mysterious will. And so we too are to pray for each other and pray for your own affliction, that God may be glorified and that others may offer praise as a result of what he is doing. Would you please stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true and it is dependable. We thank you that you are the God of all comfort. 
We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Father, as we walk this life and as we live with the gospel objective and we face affliction, Father, may we receive comfort and offer you praise and may other people see it and may your kingdom advance. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you very much. Hope you have a wonderful rest of the Lord's day.